Right, if you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, we're still in there. Uh, real quick, as you're turning there, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Um, I did want to say, yeah, Friday night was pretty awesome. Uh, it was, like Chris said, drinking from a fire hose of information, but it really gave you a perspective of the Old Testament um, in terms of how it all works together in one story. But the thing that I think I was sober to or reminded of was... Uh, it was done back in 06, and since that time, Dr. David Platt has done several of these. They do two a year, I think, at their church, and they do them live, um, so you can, like, you know, simulcast them or whatever you do through the Internet. But, um, so back then, they usually focus on some kind of persecuted church, some place in the world, and it was Africa, uh, particularly Sudan. And so, I, I don't know, a third of the way through the study, and as he's going, he stops, because he's just teaching from his church, and he, and he looks up, and he says, everyone look up to the ceiling, and you'll see these little figurines that they'd come out in paper, little black shapes of men, and they'd, you know, taped them up on the rafters, and he said there's 7,000 uh, of these little paper men up in the ceiling, and each one of those represents 100 Christian leaders, so not just Christians, but Christian leaders who had been um, martyred in the last 25 years just in this particular area. So that's 700,000 Christian leaders. That doesn't even count the number of Christians, which is in the millions that have been slaughtered, but the Christian leaders. And so you're sobered real quick to the comfort that we enjoy here uh, as a church. And in one sense, you go, yeah, I'm really glad here. In another sense, you start to really value the cost that they have and the, I think the depth of faith that they have that they will assemble uh, fearing that they possibly could be killed, fearing the knock on the door, they could be arrested. Uh, and we here struggle to, you know, get here uh, and to gather as a Bible study or whatever for a lot less reason. Um, so it was pretty powerful. And um, for us, hopefully, uh, personally convicting, but for us as a church to figure out exactly how we can help and what we can do. And I think there's some things, and we're going to be eventually talking about those things. But we're in Judges right now, of which Dr. David Platt went over as part of it. Uh, it was great. And we're going to be in Judges through the end of June, and then we will actually go through a four-part series in the book of Ruth. And where we're hitting, which is about Judges 9, is actually where the book of Ruth takes place. You'll notice in the first verse of the book of Ruth, it says, during the time of Judges. So that's why we're going through Ruth, not just, hey, let's do a girly book now or something. So it's uh, Judges and Ruth, and then Judges again. So that's how we're doing it. Right now, we're in Judges 6. We go through every verse, and we're going to be in verse 33 today, and following uh, as we start to look more into Gideon and who this guy is and, and what he uh, ultimately did. So we're in verse 33. If you have it there, uh, it'll be on the screen, but I'm going to read it. Here we go. It says, Judges 6, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. That would be his particular clan. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulon, to Nephtali, and they went up to meet them. And all God's people said, this is God's word. So, we're going to read some more verses in here, and I'm going to kind of uh, break it up into uh, just two parts here. So we'll start there. But last week... 
we were introduced to uh, the judge of the month, and it's going to last about a month, named Gideon. And Gideon is a pretty normal guy. Actually, most of these judges are. Um, minus Samson had some few special things about him, but it didn't make him any more special. Actually, made him a lot more darker. But Gideon uh, is hiding out in a wine press, uh, thrashing out wheat uh, because he doesn't want to get it stolen. And appearing as the angel of the Lord, Jesus shows up and tells this unknown weakling, and he calls himself a weakling, uh, this weakling, this thrasher of wheat, that he is a mighty man of valor, and that his mission is to save Israel from the Midianites, this mob that has literally eaten away their lives for the last seven years. And so Gideon um, isn't real impressed by the call to mission, and he is actually pretty reluctant to obey what uh, the Lord tells him to do, because he can't see beyond his problems, and he can't see beyond what he believes God has not done over the last seven years. So he's pretty cynical, pretty depressed, uh, maybe even a bit bitter. And the in, in irony of it is that he has this immense idol to Baal in his backyard. Okay, So he's crying out to God or cry, complaining about God. Meanwhile, he has this worship to this false god, Baal, huge idol in his backyard. And it's really blinded him to uh, the fact that his circumstances and the Midianites themselves are not the actual problem. His relationship with God is. And let's be honest, that sounds pretty similar to us. It's not often when we encounter issues, trials, problems, whether they be irritating or devastating, that we're like, hmm, wonder what's wrong with me. We often are just pointing out, like, these things are the things causing me problems that need to be removed, and I'm not sure how quick we are to consider the health of our relationship with God. So in this case, with Gideon and his people, the relationship with God is broken. That is the problem. There's sin their rebellion, their rejection of God is what has led them into this situation. So, before Gideon can be strong for God, he and his family and really all of Israel and the land must be purified by God. And so, that is what God does. Notice I said, that's not what Gideon asked for, that's what God does. He gives, by grace, his peace to Gideon through forgiving his sin. And he ultimately forgives the sin of his family, forgives the sin of Israel, so that they can move forward, because purity always comes before strength. Purity always comes before strength. And so God purifies them, and throughout the book of Judges, and actually throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see God's sovereignty. You're going to see God is the one who always takes the first step. God is the one who always moves first. He, in this case with Gideon, he is the one that comes to Gideon. He is the one that initiates the call. God is the one who chooses the mission. God is the one who sacrifices for forgiveness. God is the one who gives the next instructions to restore the family. God restores his family, restores his clan. And then you're going to see God will give, by grace, his spirit to empower this ordinary man to do something extraordinary. 
So God is always moving first. God is always initiating, and men are always the receivers of that grace. So, after that experience, we saw last week that Gideon tore down this altar, this huge altar to Baal, and it was a task that was um, he very dangerous, he thought, um, and proved to be such, very hard and very unpopular. So much so that he does it at night, so that no one catches him. But this thing that was so hard and so difficult and, and so um, unpopular is the thing that actually restores his family and his clan in relationship with God. He didn't know exactly how it was going to end up, but you see that it changes him and it changes his family completely. The very thing that was he was scared to do. And that restoration that he has now, his whole not only does he have peace with God, his family has peace with God, his clan has peace with God, so the next time an opportunity comes up for God to say, go do this, they have a completely different reaction. So when the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Ishmaelites, which will be the people from the east, which will be the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's first son from his servant Hagar, When they show up and swarm in for their annual harvest devastation festival, right? That they come in, they eat everything, they slaughter everything, they camp out. There's millions of them probably. There's a different reaction. So instead of cowering in fear, which is what they normally did, instead of laying down in the fetal position in their wine press, like, please go away, right? Instead of running to their caves where they have all their survivalist gear to, you know, weather the harvest, Gideon grabs the war trumpet and blows it very boldly, very loudly. He calls out his clan, his his family, who now comes. That's huge. They've been changed. Then he sends out messengers to some of the local tribes, and he gathers an army to take them on. This from the people who were crying and weeping in caves prior to this experience. That's what the peace of God does. And this wasn't, again, a result, we see in this text right here, there wasn't a result of the enemy like, man, they're a lot smaller than last year. Maybe we can take them. This wasn't a result of Gideon like, you know what, I just got a rush of self-esteem. I'm feeling really good about myself. My wine press makes me my biceps really big now. I mean, it wasn't about him. The text simply says that the difference maker was a clothing of the Spirit of the Lord. A clothing of the Spirit of the Lord. So what I see in that, or what I think we all should think about, is that whether or not someone is reluctant or enthusiastic to obey God's Word. is directly connected with the Spirit of God. It's directly connected with the Spirit of God. 1 Timothy 1.7, Paul writing to a young pastor said that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so while you can get people to do some pretty crazy things with threats and rewards and peer pressure, I firmly believe that getting someone excited about The mission of God. Getting someone excited to go into something maybe radical for God, to fight, to risk, 
to die with enthusiasm. Right? Think about those 7,000 guys on the ceiling representing 100 guys. So 700,000 Christian leaders who died with enthusiasm. Died knowing that they had served their Lord. That comes from a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that can be explained. The Holy Spirit is that one person that I think we often ignore most. Don't listen to. So we have this guy, and this is why I'm emphasizing this. You have this guy who is filled with the Spirit, clothed with the Spirit. He's got Holy Spirit all over him. And in the next verse, inexplicably, he needs reassurance. Right? That should cause us, wait a second. I mean, you got God calling Gideon, you got God, Gideon following his instructions, and then Gideon has a hard time believing that God's going to come through. And again, he has the Spirit of God. And I read that and I go, you know what, for me, and this may not be the same for you, but this is how I, I, I preach. I just like, it's got to hit here before it could ever hit anywhere. That seems really familiar to me. That seems really familiar to me, right? I, I can say with conviction, with all boldness, publicly, that I love Jesus Christ, that I believe He died for my sins that I believe God raised from the dead. And I believe because of that, He has poured out His Spirit into my heart and I have that and yet I am scared oftentimes to do what He wants me to do. That's real to me. Gideon's faith seems very normal. And there are a lot of ways to look at his actions past what happens here. And You'd be surprised, there's a lot of commentators who have a very, very negative view of what follows, of what Gideon does. And these are godly men, men that I respect, men that I've learned from. But they claim that, that Gideon is nothing less than a coward who struggles with unbelief. And I just kind of went, eh, maybe. Maybe. The problem that all of that that perspective is that God never condemns him in this text. God never says that about him. Now, while I accept that every guy in here is pretty messed up, I'm not sure if this is just, well, he's a coward and we should never do this. Because what we have, I think, is a picture of a super ordinary guy asked to do something that is radically different than what he's done. It's, it's, It's a big deal. And we each... Quite frankly, I believe individually God has asked us to do something. There's a mission right now in your life that God has asked you to do. I'm not talking about a mission going off to Ethiopia. I'm talking about something that He has said, you are to do this, and you look at it and go, that's hard. could be to fight and save your marriage. could be to battle against some addiction. It could be something, you know, God's saying, I want you to sacrifice this for the kingdom of God. I don't know what it is, but I think we all have something. And for the most part, I think the idea of that fight or accomplishing whatever that thing is, man, an awesome marriage, you know, a, a 
uh, an amazing, you know, mission for God. Yeah, the idea of it's like inspiring. Yeah, let's do it. You get excited about it. I can see that. You have a vision of it. And I think that's how Gideon starts. Man, he interacted with God. He was face-to-face with God. It's like, okay, it's got momentum, got energy. We could do this. And you can imagine, he gathers an army, and he gathers like 30,000 guys. It's not just like, you know, 10 guys and they're going. It's a 30,000-man army. And you can maybe imagine him giving this inspiring speech. You know, guys, the Lord came and talked to me. And here's what happened. And this is what I did. My whole family has changed. And we're going to go take the Midianites. And they're like, yeah! Right? We're going to charge over there. We're going to take them down. Yeah! Let's kick some Midianite butt! Yeah! You know, they're like, all right, let's go. And they're running, right? Woo! Yeah! Oh, I can't wait. And they're all excited. And they get to the edge of the valley where they're all camped out. They start walking up there. Woo! All right! Well, holy cow. Because what he saw was a couple hundred thousand people. Uh-oh. Right? Yeah! Oh, my gosh. That's big. Well, that's, that's really big. I mean, that's, that's bigger than I thought. I mean, this is, you can just imagine Gideon. Like, this, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. It's going to be a lot more painful than I thought. I mean, I could, guys are going to die. I could die. And maybe he's thinking about, like, I, I just took these guys away from their families. Like, I'm responsible. Like, whoa. And suddenly the excitement of it maybe dies down and a little bit of doubt begins to creep in. And I know what God said, but, you know, is he, gosh, is he really going to, I mean, this is big. Is he really going to do this? Is he really able to do this? I mean, you think about Gideon's experience. He, I believe, saw the Lord face to face. He thought he did. He sees Jesus face to face. He sees, he hears the, the voice of God the Father tell him it's going to be okay. Then he is clothed with the Spirit, right? He has everything and yet he needs reassurance. He's scared. And so Gideon tests God. Here's the text, which is very familiar to our culture, whether you're a believer or not. Verse 36, here's what Gideon does as he comes, what I believe is on the edge of mission, looking out this huge camp. And Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry in all the ground, then I shall know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Verse 39, Then Gideon said to God, Let let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with fleece. Please... He's using the magic word. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. 
So we have Gideon testing God, of which immediately you think back in Deuteronomy, other passages where he's like, don't test God, even in Jesus' temptation. Don't test God. Oh man, he's done something wrong. Unsure, I think, of whether God will actually do what he says, he lays out a piece of wool, fleece, out on the threshing floor, which would be sometimes made of stone, sometimes wood, but it's exposed to the elements, and he lays out this fleece, and he asks God to confirm what he has already said, that you're going to save Midian by having this wool the first time soaked with water and everything else dry. Pretty miraculous. And God does it. And then Gideon, although he had said, if you do this, I shall know, he does it a second time. Well, okay, let me just be sure. So he flips it. He says, this time, in which you understand, like, the do, like, why, why this? Well, he is a guy who's grown up under the, um, you know, family that's been worshiping Baal, the weather god. So there's some interaction there of, like, who's the bigger god here? So he asks, like, why that kind of test? That's probably why. Puts it out a second time. He says, this time, make the fleece dry, and then everything else wet. And so, again, the miracle happens, and he does it. So, before we go, like, what's going on here? Let us remind ourselves of something in terms of judges. and That is, it. the theme of judges, if you will, is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Even the heroes. Okay, they're included in the everyone. So just because these men are doing things at times, we don't go, well, that's God's guy, so he's doing... No, they do a lot of wrong things. They are still broken, they are still sinful, they are still weak. That's why we have to be very careful, like taking a lot of things in the Old Testament and going, well, I'm going to copy that attitude and that example because that's what we should do. That's the Christian guy. The Old Testament was not intended to do that. We need to view uh, Gideon as the story of description of a guy who was an unfaithful man, living in an unfaithful world, working out his relationship with a very faithful God. Now, that means that his actions are not a prescription to follow, which might be a surprise to some of you who have used this passage for many years of laying out fleece to test things. We'll talk about that. But essentially, when we talk about what's going on here and what kind of example is this, and it's not to say that Old Testament guys aren't examples of anything. There are some times that we need to uh, emulate some of the things they do, but let's, let's not try and be Abraham or try to be Gideon or be David. That's not the goal. Each of these deliverers, including Gideon, fall short and point us to the one deliverer who did not fall short. That's the point of it all. It's intending to point us to one person, one who didn't fall short, one who didn't sin, one who appeared weak but was incredibly strong, one who didn't ever test God but listened perfectly and obeyed perfectly and saved his people. Gideon and all his weaknesses are to lead us to Christ. That's what the story is about. So, Whether or not Gideon is cowardly or unfaithful in his actions, I'm not really sure because guess what? The Bible doesn't really say. And just because really smart guys say, well, this is why, I don't know. 
There's plenty of smart guys that say the opposite. But I do think there are some things that are, quite frankly, wrong about laying out a fleece like this. And there are some things that are really quite right. But when all is said and done, we must fight the temptation in however we come about, you know, to conclude this thing, is that we we must not be man-centered in our interpretation. In other words, um, this text is giving us less of a picture of a man and what a faithful man should do and more of a picture of who our faithful God is. That's what the purpose of Scripture is. Not to just go in and go, well, I need to figure out all the things I need to do next. No, it is actually to declare all that God has done and all who God is in His name and bring glory to Him. That is the purpose. So before we get too man-centered, let us remember that. But I do think we have to talk about laying out the fleece because it's a phrase, a concept, an idea that's been misused by our culture for a long time. Uh, people have done it, maybe you have done it, with very good intentions and bad theology. Okay? Um, the phrase laying out a fleece has been employed by believers and actually non-believers throughout history as a way of making decisions. If you're a believer, it is the means by which, and some would often use this story, to how do you discern God's will? And usually the fleece comes out, or the fleece idea is used when someone has to make a difficult decision, when they have to choose between two uh, desirable options, or one that's kind of desirable, one that's undesirable, or to determine levels of risk, what should I do? I'll lay out a fleece. And I'll do this to discern what God would have me do in this situation, and they end up testing God in all kinds of creative ways. And most people don't actually use a fleece. I don't even know where you'd get one today, right? Put my slippers out there, my fleece slippers, see if they end up wet, okay? But I I actually know people have. You know, stick a t-shirt out there or do some kind of weird thing, wanting a sign. Usually when people lay out a fleece, what they actually are doing is just using really good prudence and wisdom and determining what the best choice is and praying as they do. But the interesting thing about laying out a fleece in a really uber-spiritual way is that usually, and often wrongly, people conclude that the path that God wants someone to take is the one that proves easier, more convenient, or more comfortable or fulfilling for me. Right? But if you spend any time listening to God and reading his word, you'll find that God, God God has a tendency to tell you to do the things that you don't want to do. To lead you into things that are very countercultural, leading to things that are very counterintuitive. Right? Just because a door is open doesn't mean you should walk through it. We like that open door phrase too. I'm going to lay out a fleece and see where the open door is. Right? It's like, that sounds really like spiritual and stuff, but actually I'm not sure if it's biblical. Because the fact is, if you only hear God telling you things that you want to do, or the things that the culture says, yeah, that'd be a fantastic idea, you probably have a broken fleece, right? You probably need a new fleece. Because even Gideon, he's not like testing something that's going to probably prove well for him necessarily. 
So there can be several things wrong with laying out a fleece to discern God's will. So let me just hit these and destroy your perspective of laying out a fleece maybe or hopefully maybe just clarify it. And I will say this, because someone talked to me after first service, like talk about his experience laying out a fleece. I'm not saying it's like totally evil if you've ever done it. I'm just saying it might not be what you think it is. So in terms of God's will, there are a couple things to understand. First, that there's a lot of uh, wrong ideas about there out there about God's will, namely that God has this uh, secret plan for each of our individual lives and that he hasn't revealed it to us, but he's holding you accountable to figure it out. Right? And we need to figure out what the will of God is before I make any decisions. So I make sure I'm on track with this mystery that he's not telling me. And quite frankly, this kind of approach to God's will results in a life that's full of fear and uncertainty. Fear and uncertainty. In terms of our decision-making, big and small, God's will is not a puzzle that we have to figure out or a target that we can easily hit or miss. And I think it's incredibly important and I would encourage people to ask God for wisdom. It can be really paralyzing if we believe that there's some sort of hidden direction that can be easily missed with every little decision we make. I don't believe God's will is that fragile in what he wants us to do. Second thing is if you do live that way where you're laying out a fleece for every decision you've got to make and you know this mysterious will that he's not telling you about but holding you accountable to... If you have that relationship with God, like that's what it's like, then that's really like having a relationship with a magic eight ball. Right? What do you want me to do? I don't like that. You know? I'm sure no one ever interacts with God like that, right? But it's true. Like, well, I didn't like that answer. Ask again, you know? Here's how Kevin DeYoung, and if you ever have a chance to uh, read Pastor Kevin DeYoung's book out there, it's really small, it's called Just Do Something. It's a great read. <clears throat> he goes into this, and I, I'll quote him from this. It's eight ball ideas from him, and I think it's fantastic. He says that God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks with him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. There's a reason that in uh, the beginning of the conversation with Gideon, when the angel of the Lord is speaking to him, he tells Gideon he already has everything he needs. I think we miss, we read past that really quickly. He has everything he needs to obey what God has told him to do. Third thing, last thing, he says, uh, when we test God with fleece, and this is the problem with, I think, testing God with fleece, I have found, and I'll just be honest with you, that it's pretty rare that we are actually testing what he has already said. Uh, usually, I think, that we're trying... We're kind of going into it with what we want, and we're trying to find some kind of divine approval for what our hearts already desire, good or bad. 
And the key, I think, to understanding the heart of what, what Gideon's fleece is all about is in Judges 6.36. So verse 36, where Gideon tells God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. And later says, as you have said. Gideon knows God's will. It's not a secret. His word has been very clear. And so I will be bold enough to say, we know God's will. It's very clear. It's right here. In the Bible. He has spoken. But unfortunately, not many of us read it. And it's so much alluring to be all spiritual about it. I'll lay out a fleece. God's actually spoken on what we are to do. And though He may not tell you exactly who to marry, or what career you should have, or where to eat after church, perhaps He's letting you make those decisions. Perhaps the big ones, the important ones, He has clearly spoken on. I believe He has. See, laying out a fleece um, isn't necessarily sinful until it is. Well, that's helpful, right? I think it can be some good things about it. But most of the time, laying out a fleece and hoping for a sign, whether it be tingles or a wet piece of fleece, I actually think, quite frankly, it's a lazy man's surefire way to do absolutely nothing. Or perhaps just do the wrong thing. So if you want to know what to do, what God has for you to do, read your Bible. It's nothing new. It's a very old thing. Don't read it, though, looking for answers to your questions. Instead, read it to find what questions you should be asking. Instead of using it to test what you've already decided to do or avoid, why don't you take God's Word, His living Word that cuts deeper than a double-edged sword, and let it test your own motivations, let it test your own hopes, and let it test some of your plans. I think you might find they come in conflict. But relative to Gideon, I'm not convinced that everything he does is bad with laying out this fleece and that we can't, you know, we should just don't ever do that. I think um, we can learn a lot from it. And just as commentators uh, speak of him being unbelieving and a coward and all those things, the interesting thing is that the book of Hebrews has some very positive things to say about Gideon. In fact, I find that in this text and in Hebrews, all I see is positive. If you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 11. It's a very um, well-known passage in Scripture that speaks about the uh, faithfulness of man. They call it the kind of hall of faithfulness. And it goes through really the Old Testament and the history of um, all these guys and lists all these things they did. And you'll find that all these things they did result in a lot of pain. Yet it's the chapter of faith. And in verse 32, uh, some of the judges come in. Here's what it says. What more shall I say, as the writer of Hebrews is laying out all these different aspects of faithfulness, 
For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Hmm, what are all those last three phrases they're talking about? Made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign, foreign armies to fight. I wonder if we maybe should consider a little bit of a different view than just a man struggling with um, cowardice or unfaithfulness. Maybe Gideon is set forth as a very real example of, yes, a weak, unfaithful, broken man, of which everyone in this room is, and every human that's ever been born, who is interacting with God in a very real way when things are bad or look impossible. And instead of simply doubting that God could do it, and questioning God's ability, and challenging God and His faithfulness or His sovereignty, maybe, maybe, we should see Him as a fearful child. A fearful child of God who wants more than anything His loving Father to assure Him that everything is going to be okay. I like that. I, I can connect with that. I can relate to that. And in his fear, he rightly turns to God. Twice. And when you believe that God is more than an eight ball or a divine venue machine, I think you'll find yourself uh, turning to him not just to get what you want, but to get what he actually wants to give you and ultimately to get him. See, as Christians, we we have to continue to remind ourselves that God is a person and that we have a personal relationship with him, that we interact with him and should interact with him. Gideon might be a man struggling with unbelief, but he is also a man who wants to be certain of his ongoing relationship with God, that God is there, that God loves him, that God has him, that God's leading him. So he talks to him. Gideon talks to God more than anybody in all of Judges. He talks to him, he listens to him, he asks him questions, he makes requests, and God speaks back to him. And we still see that's not enough because Gideon's life ends pretty bad, quite frankly. But we do see the reality of what interacting with God maybe looks like, of a constant relationship with God. Now, it'd be easy to get, again, man-centered and go, oh, we need to be like Gideon, right? But let's just look maybe the other side and consider not just how Gideon relates to God, but how God relates to him. Like a father. I mean, like a father. If you're a father and you... I've had your children get scared when you've asked them to do something and they come to you for your assurance. Perhaps this will make sense to you. Because God the Father doesn't condemn Him. 
He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, didn't I tell you already? He draws near to him. Gideon not only wants to be near to God, but I think we see that God actually wants to be near to Gideon. And in many ways, what I think we see here, because of what he doesn't do, right? You should read the Bible sometimes about, as you're reading, go, what didn't happen here? What wasn't said here? And in this case, I think you have God telling him, you know what? It's okay to be scared. It's okay to have some fear. As long as you turn to me in your fear. Because we all deal with fear differently, and we can deal with it in bad ways. When we get fearful and scared about something we know we're to do, about the impossible task before us, it's too hard, it's too scary, whatever, we can fight it. We can get angry. You know, it looks like we're tough. We're actually very scared. If you ever watched the documentary called Tyson, Mike Tyson was one of the you know, most ferocious boxers that we've ever seen. And he speaks about his mentality going into the ring, and he talks a lot about fear. He was very scared, and that made him an incredible fighter. And we look at that and go, oh, you're tough. No, he was very frightened. And some people deal with fear by hiding in caves. They run away from it. What God wants us to do in our fears is to draw close to him so that those fears will not govern us. He wants us to turn to Him to know that He is there, that He won't reject us, that He is patient, that He is loving, that He is kind. And more than anything, I think we see that God is also humble. It seems kind of weird to think about. But what we see is He's not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. Even if we ask twice. So what are we to do when God says go and we are scared to do it? Whatever your go is, whatever your do this, I'm with you, is. Well, it begins, quite frankly, by listening to God. Because you have to make sure He's the one who's actually speaking. I remember um, when I was called to plant the church. And here's the, here's the story of it really quickly. Um, this was not my plan. My plan was to be a high school teacher forever. Okay, why? Summer's off. Why not, right? Summer's off, Christmas off, spring break off, guaranteed raise. I could go into work, 7 o'clock, my tires were coming off the campus at 2.20, I was done. I didn't think about kids, didn't think about lessons, I got so good that like, I didn't even correct papers at home. Why? Wasn't paid to. Oh, it was beautiful. Loved it. Then one day, Jesus showed up, changed my plans. So on a Sunday night, went and visited church. I don't know exactly why that night. It wasn't because it was some tingly music or awesome word. It was just like, this is the night, smacked me. And I could clearly hear him saying something. But it sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? I'm like, 
What? Went home, wife was sleeping, didn't get to talk to her. Monday, sat down with some guys, said, yeah, I think I might be supposed to be a pastor or something. I don't know. And they said, yeah, it makes sense. I said, what? That's not helpful, right? They said, well, you read kind of weird books and stuff that normal people don't read. I'm like, okay, whatever. So I get in my car after being really encouraged, and I drive on Highway 9 down to Marysville Pilchuck High School. And to my shame, um, a interesting song came on the radio. I think it was Newsboys. I'm not a fan of Newsboys. Nothing wrong with Newsboys. Just not in my top 25 music selections that I would probably listen to. But this is how God decided to teach me. And it was a song about the presence of God. And it came on. And as I turned on the lock road, the big hill, I started weeping like a baby. Now, if you know me very well, be surprised I even have tear ducts, right? Don't cry very often, but this one's like not a normal like sniffle. This is like, you know, embarrassing cry. Glad no one's in the car with me cry, okay? And I'm weeping. And I cried out to God to say, look, I will do whatever it is you're telling me to do. I cannot understand what it is. And I sat in the parking lot crying having to go teach classes, of which I did eventually walk in, eyes all red, and they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, well, I got allergies. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus is talking to me. You want to hear about it? You know, I can't really say that. But that started the progression, and that's where led to where we are today, where I am today. But the conviction I came to was I would do whatever, as long as I knew God was with me. I was scared. I, you I don't know if you can imagine, okay? My wife was frightened. What's this going to do to our marriage? How am I going to have any money? I mean, I didn't know. At this point, I had the state. I had vacations. How is this all going to work? I was scared. But I came to the place, and God brought me to the place, and said, I will be with you. It'll be okay. Does that mean it's going to be painless? No. Oh, okay, that would be nice. But I'll be with you. So what do you do when God speaks to you? I don't know what the mission is. It might just be... Leading your family. It might be changing career. It might be making all kinds of decisions. And you know God is saying this. And you're like, are you okay if God's with you? What I want to get us away from is like putting out a sign. I want you to start listening to God. Really listening to God. I think there remains a lot of confusion about what exactly to do because people have simply failed to read what God has said to do. And when you start interacting with his word and start interacting with him in prayer, guess what? He talks a lot. He'll speak to you. He'll direct you. But I think it's foolish to wait for a sign, to lay out a fleece. Why? Quite frankly, because Jesus says it was evil. Here's what I mean. There has been a sign that's already been given. We don't need to wait for more tinglys or flashes of lightning, or wet fleece to overcome the fears we might have. Luke chapter 11 says it this way. It is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking directly about signs in a way that's um, both comforting and disturbing. And we'll close with this. 
Verse 29 says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation's an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What was the sign of Jonah? Well, we did a series on Jonah that's probably horrible. I I haven't listened to it for four years, but... Jonah is a minor prophet, one of the the great prophets of Israel that had been called out by God to go and preach to an Assyrian pagan city called Nineveh, and basically he said, go over there and tell them I'm going to kill them. Fantastic. Jonah says, I don't like that idea, that sounds too hard, I'm too scared, so he jumps on a ship to Tarshish in the opposite direction. However... God sends a big storm. Jonah realizes it's his fault. And he is thrown overboard and swallowed by a really big fish. Okay? And he sits in that fish for three days. He's buried in it. And after three days, he's puked up alive on the coast of Nineveh. And he goes into the city. And if you haven't figured it out, Jonah many, many years prior to it, pictures the gospel. Specifically the life, the death, and the burial of Jesus who was in the tomb for three days, and ultimately his resurrection. This sign, the one sign that Paul says, if this didn't happen, we are people most to be pitied. This is the sign that is supposed to calm all of our fears that come with following Jesus where he leads. And like Gideon, I actually believe most of us know right now the battle that God is calling us to. And it's unique to us. It's different. But if we are normal, broken, screwed up, which we all are, Christians, like Gideon, we will need reassurance because it will be scary. But our reassurance is not going to come from some mystical, emotional rush or lightning flash or water-soaked fleece. We only need one sign, the one that has already come, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This sign shows us something very important, that not only that God is willing to save, but that He is able to do exactly what He says. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is bigger than any of our enemies. The biggest enemies we have. Sin, Satan, and death. And he has freed us from the paralysis of fear that comes with those things. And empowered us to fight. But it's a different kind of fight. It's one of faith in Jesus, not faith in ourselves. It's a fight to trust, not necessarily a fight to win. It's a fight to believe that it is okay, not that it's just going to be okay. And it's a fight to actually remember what 
has already been done and not what we have to do. We close with communion. And I still believe that we have a tendency to go through this routine as just that, this ritual without thinking about it. And I'll close by reading the scripture from 1 Corinthians 11 of Paul speaking about it. And I just want to remind you of this. You come to the table on Sunday if you are a believer. If you're not, I pray you'll confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised from the dead and you will be saved today. And then you come to the table and guess what? Just because you confess that and believe that doesn't mean every single fear you ever have is taken away. But that's why we come to the table because we come with a pile of fears for whatever it is God is asking us to do in the moment. And we lay at the table and we don't just go, oh, my fears are taken away and they'll never be there again. We lay at the table and say, God's bigger than my fears. And we actively participate and remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We say the worst thing that could ever happen in this world is death. That's already taken care of. We'll read this passage to remind us of what it's about. 11.23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat it, this bread, often you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and his resurrection. We have a living God who is active and working and right now willing to take away our fears so that we can follow him wherever he leads. That's why we take communion. I pray you'll join us.